Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delight, show number 54 on this cold and wintry Wednesday morning. So I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, show 54 and a... Oh, and what a show we have today. Joan D. Vinci, a fantastic story by legend science fiction writer. Wow, how cool is that? Give you a little heads up what is coming on to the show. We have the editorial by my good self. A little bit of poetry by Mark Rich. Flash fiction comes to you by our very own Matthew Sanborn-Smith. Fact article, Amy H. Sturgis. We have a little update on the Sofa Nought Awards. And, like I say, main fiction, A View from a Height. We also have the competition as well. Updates on the competitions and what else you can win in the competition. So, I hope you stick around and I hope you enjoy the show. <laughs> So this podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for details. So jumping straight in with the editorial from my good self, Mr. Tony C. Smith. I'll tell you why I want to do this editorial, what kind of the content in it is about it. It's just looking back over the year, do you know what I mean? Just seeing how Starship Sofa has developed, you know, how it's basically been a year, I think, roughly around about a year since I had my little accident and since me and Kieran kind of went our separate ways. And, you know, a lot's kind of happened in there. And it was, you know, it was a kind of a big thing to 
have Kieran leave. Do you know what I mean? And it just didn't work out. You know, Kieran was kind of working all silly hours. Then he went to London, and it just it wasn't kind of feasible. So you know, we decided to kind of split up, kind of, kind of amicably. But we, and I haven't actually seen him for a while. But I would get on. I see him at a wedding once or twice. But what I hope I've kept with the show, and what I kind of was thinking about is. The excitement me and Kieran used to have about talking about kind of the writers and talking about the works, you know, talking about a book, talking about the story, talking about the ideas. I hope Starship Sova still does that for everybody else. You know, that was the whole reason why the show in the beginning, three years down the line, was put together. Do you know what I mean? It was just the love of like me and Kieran and the science fiction that we kind of just submersed ourselves in. I hope that's filled that through and I hope that went to everybody you know and I do get some emails and, and that's that is what's kind of one of the things that really does please us when I hear people say their book reading you know their reading matter the, t- the books beside the bedside have increased you know due to starships over that's such a like a nice kick do you know what I mean and looking back with oral delights as well do you know it was it's really, that has grown in a kind of organic way. Do you know what I mean? It was just purely down to Michael Moorcock giving the story. And it's developed from there. Do you know what I mean? And the more it's kind of developed and the more it's went on, you know, I've added little bits and that. And I hope now, you know, it is this kind of fully-fledged audio science fiction magazine that I kind of wanted to be. And what I'm quite proud of, you know, and this is, is you know, singing praises to Starship Silver, you look back at the kind of fiction we've had and the fact articles and the poetry and I'm quite proud do you know what I mean and I hope everyone is and I hope it's kind of like you say that love of science fiction has the way we've kind of sent out materials in the feed I hope it it is kindling this you know what I mean the kind of love our love of science fiction I hope it's it's spreading to everybody do you know and trust us trust us trust us when I say it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't have been, you know, for everybody taking a hold of Starships over and putting in their little bit. Do you know what I mean? I think I probably would have floundered a long, long time ago if it wasn't for everyone, you know, adding stuff to the show. And I don't just mean like contributors, you know, I, you know, brilliant. That is just an amazing when I get like help, so much help and so much quality material by people. But it's People are just sending an email, you know, and it honestly could be three lines. Tony, great show. Thank you so much. That, honestly, is such like the fuel that keeps the Starship Sova going. It's amazing. And even if you don't, but you're listening. Do you know what I mean? Because I know like, I can get the download figures. So I know how many people are listening. And that as well. Do you know what I mean? It might be quite, I know people say, do it for like 10, you know what I mean? That's you, you, you do it for 10, you do it for the love of it. But that would be pretty hard to kind of put all that effort in just to know if 10 people were listening. But because Starship Sofa has got a, a nice size audience, but what's more important is it's a nice size community. You know, it's all of it that are kind of listening to this and sharing. And like I say, I get loads of emails and it's all just like one big mix of this kind of, what I feel is like like this, you know, rejuvenation of science fiction especially in this kind of broadband internet ipod era who knows where it's going to go and i'm just so pleased that we are on board and making it go in our own direction do you know what i mean it's like kind of not governed by 
anything, you know what I mean? No rules, no kind of boundaries there. Just send in stuff, and if I like it, I'll put it on, and yes, it gets the message out that kind of science fiction is like so alive and kicking, and it's going in different directions, you know, even from, like, say, five years ago. This couldn't have happened, you know, the Starship sofa has just kind of been born out of this new creation of the digital age and broadband, so... Like I say, everything about Starship Rovers from email, listeners, contributions, I just want a really big thank you because without you, it wouldn't have happened. Do you know what I mean? It would have crashed and burned a long, long time ago. So many thanks. That's all I can say. I am humbly appreciated of everyone who has helped out on this show. Tear in my eye there. Sort that out with a little advertisement. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 335,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. And both my audiobooks that I've just recently started and finished have been from Audible. First off is Anathem. What a book, 32 hours. And heads up, it is a good, I mean, to be quite honest, the production values of Anathem is staggering, to be quite honest. To take that book and to make... You know, you're talking like a lot of work and effort. And also, I am listening now as a kind of a light refreshment. Another Audible book is the Joe Haldeman Accidental Time Machine, which is seven hours long. Perfect. Do you know what I mean? Straight into it. Now we're into it and it is really loving it. So do pop over to Audible and have a look at their list of science fiction books. So I think we will kick off today with a little bit of poetry by Mark Rich. Light Across an Impossible Lake by Mark Rich Day breaks over the impossible lake, seven light years long. A newborn may take from her birth to dawning self-awareness. Before the family's downshore friends express joy at seeing sunrise gleam in the east. Dawn at last. They know this glow has increased to shocking morning on that first touch shore. Eyes upon the sky, they hope to see more. Of what Easterners are calling daylight. Straight against the wall, the child has her height marked in pencil. She loves her first day dress. Classes start soon, her parents trained in darkness. Downshore friends will only now be learning how she was born and start school this morning. Light bathes all the lake and will for ages. Far generations will see the edges of their lake lands turning red with sunset. Such thoughts fail to make those present forget what luck has been theirs. She who learns to play well with others on this beautiful day. Soon will grow, wed, and some hour die while the sun climbs higher into the sky. Her own child will never see first morning, just day, and on the lake, bright sun burning. 
There you go. Don't forget, copyright is good friend Mark Rich. Mark, thank you so much for that. A link is on to Mark's site if you want to pop over there. Mark dabbles in music, art, poetry, fiction, the whole lot. Do pop over there. And did anyone recognise the voice of, the narrator of, Kate Baker? Kate, thank you so much. Kate did, if you remember last week, Dead Notes by Ted Kozmatska. So, Kate, thank you so much. Links again to Kate's website. So we are jumping into our flash fiction section, and it is by Matthew Sanborn-Smith. Matt, this is a cracking little story. It is narrated today by... Julio Flavio Morales Marchini. Now, Julio, if I've got any of that right, I am a star. There's <laughs> four words there. Did I get them right or not? But Julio, thank you so much. He is, give you a heads up, Julio is 28-year-old, living in Brazil. He is a physician and completing a cardiology residency in January 2009. He has a PhD in molecular biology. He's engaged to Fernanda Zapata and will be married in 19th of December 2009. Julio, not long ago, plenty of time to pull out. <laughs> How dare I say that? He is an avid listener to podcasts and is actually through Fred mentioning about the critters.org site. Julio has been involved in that. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present Hard Rain. By Matthew Sanborn Smith. The clouds rode in fast, heavy and dark, and caught them in the country far from any shelter they knew. Jake found an abandoned barn, and he and David pulled open the enormous door just as the first drops were starting to fall. By the time they got back in the car, the rain was already stinging. Inside the barn, they stayed in the car, Jake covered with sweat, with the air conditioner on. You're getting old, Dad, David said. The door wasn't that heavy. It's not the door. This is serious stuff here, kid. I don't want to scare you, but I don't want to bullshit you either. We may not make it. You serious? You saw that sky. This could be a long, hard rain. We've got the barn and the car, but it's getting worse. The news was filled with stories each day, more horrific than the last. No one could explain why the new rains began. Why should they be able to explain why they got worse? They heard something small crack against the roof of the car. David jumped. You saw the door, Jake said. The thing was covered with pinholes. This old barn had seen a few storms. Is there metal in it? The new rain? It sounded like metal. No, just water. But it's falling a lot harder than it should. Gravity doesn't pull down rain like this. Listen, I'm sorry I haven't been a great dad. You've been great. More raindrops hit the car now. Too many holes in the barn's roof. No, I haven't spent the time with you that I should have. You're busy. I'm not really busy. I just can't bring myself to get into the stuff you like. I'm too selfish, son. I'm too concerned with trying to get my life together when I should... Don't look up. Cover your head with your jacket. There were strange lines on the wet windshield... It took Jake a minute to realize they were tiny spiderweb cracks. I'm sorry for all the times I was bad, Dad. David's voice was quivering. You were fine. Don't worry about it. You were just being a kid. I couldn't be more proud of you. Outside sounded like gunfire. 
there was a massive groan of tire wood, followed by a crash that made them both jump. A few yards away, a chunk of the barn's roof had fallen in, about four feet by six feet of rain-riddled blanks. Jake dove out of the car. What are you doing? David yelled, muffled when the car door slammed shut. Dad! Dad! Jake's head was covered, but his hands were bare. He grabbed the piece of roof and dragged it to the car. His hands were on fire. He hauled the wood onto the car without looking up and dove back into the vehicle. David's face was wet, but he wasn't hurt. You all right? You're bleeding. Jake looked at his hands, covered in blood, wiggled his fingers. Everything was still working. I'm fine. Just broke the skin. A little bleeding is good for him. High blood pressure anyway. I feel better already. They both laughed, and Jake wrapped his arms around his son. Don't do that again, David said. I bought us a few more minutes. The gunfire eased up, and dim light came in through the barn's roof. In a few minutes, the rain passed. They stared out the windows until it was bright again. We made it, David said. Jake fell back into his seat with folded arms, tucking his hands beneath his armpits. David bent forward, burying his face in his hands. For a few minutes, they couldn't move. There you go. Matt, fantastic. Thank you so much. Yes, it has been a while since that was accepted. My apologies. <laughs> I think for a year, are we talking? <laughs> And Julio, thank you again. Great narration. Look out for more work by Julio in the narration terms for Starship Sofa. So we come on to the fact article, and it is by Amy H. Sturgis. Amy, every time is a classic. What have you got this time? Hello, Sofanauts. Today, for my look back at genre history, I'd like to talk about the fascinating story of one novel that was important not only because of the ideas it contained, but also because of the ongoing inspiration it provided to some of the greatest minds of science fiction literature. I'm talking of the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, the only novel-length work produced by Edgar Allan Poe. Poe, as you may know, was an American poet, short story writer, novelist, editor, and literary critic who lived from 1809 to his death under very mysterious circumstances, still unexplained to this day, in 1849, and is considered one of the greatest members of the American Romantic movement. His works are alternately considered pioneering efforts of horror, mystery, and science fiction. He published the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket in 1838. It's a fascinating story of a young man who stows away on a whaling ship called the Grampus and experiences various adventures and perils. At first, the story seems to be just a traditional sea adventure, a travel narrative. But as it progresses, it becomes increasingly bizarre, including stories of shipwreck, mutiny, cannibalism, and supernaturalism. In short, this tale gets pretty freaky pretty quickly. Now, Poe did his research to get a lot of the specific details as correct as he possibly could. For example, he used the journals of Captain James Cook and Benjamin Morrill's A Narrative of Four Voyages, which came out in 1832, 
Most specifically, we know that Poe was intimately familiar with the proposal made by Jeremiah Reynolds in 1836 to the U.S. Congress, suggesting an expedition to the South Seas. How do we know this? A year later, an address on the subject of a surveying and exploring expedition to the Pacific Ocean and the South Seas was published with a critical introduction by Poe himself. So we know that Poe was grounded in some of the latest scientific thought about this kind of expedition. But it's perhaps more interesting to lovers of science fiction that Poe also drew inspiration from an interesting theory by John Cleve Sims Jr. on the possibility of a hollow Earth. In 1818, Sims proposed that the Earth was kind of a hollow shell that included inner shells. That opened at both poles. This theory made him instantly famous or infamous, depending on which audience you're talking about. And two years later, a novel based on the theory called *Simsonia: Voyage of Discovery* was published. Now, it was attributed to Captain Adam Seaborn, but today many scholars think that Sims wrote it himself. At any rate, Poe drew on the hollow Earth theory in the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. Now Poe's novel is interesting for a number of reasons, but perhaps it's most known for its bizarre cliffhanger ending. As the story progresses, things get increasingly dire for our hero Arthur Gordon Pym, until at last he's in a boat in mysterious and unknown waters, with, in true Poe fashion, a dead body, and this is what is described. And now we rushed into the embraces of the cataract, where a chasm threw itself open to receive us. But there arose in our pathway a shrouded human figure, very far larger in its proportions than any dweller among men, and the hue of the skin of the figure was of the perfect whiteness of the snow. And there, it stops, and a note follows. I'll read you the beginning of the note. The circumstances connected with the late, sudden, and distressing death of Mr. Pym are already well known to the public through the medium of the daily press. It is feared that the few remaining chapters which were to have completed his narrative and which were retained by him, while the above were in type, for the purpose of revision, have been irrevocably lost through the accident by which he perished himself. This, however, may prove not to be the case, and the papers, if ultimately found, will be given to the public. Well, there are several things going on here. First, we're told that we know how the story ends because of the media, but of course we don't. And by this point, we're dying to find out. And secondly, Poe leaves the door open, saying, "Perhaps the missing final installments of Arthur Gordon Pym's narrative will be found and shared with the world." On the one hand, we might wonder what is going on with Edgar Allan Poe. Is this the same author who, in his mysteries such as the ones featuring investigator C. Auguste Dupin, proved himself to be obsessive about tying together every last loose thread of plot, and here he is just leaving the ending dangling open with no proper conclusion? What's his deal? Well, some authors cue the violin music. Think that this is actually an extended metaphor. That it's a story of self-discovery and the discovery of American identity. Arthur Gordon Pym sounds a little bit like Edgar Allan Poe, 
and he chooses to take this voyage, sailing away from Edgartown, Massachusetts. Maybe sailing away from himself in that sense, and in the end discovers something mysterious and much bigger than himself. Okay, I admit that's a little bit of a stretch, but one thing we do know is the ongoing effect this novel has had. In part, just because Poe leaves the end open, an invitation for other authors to contribute to the story, and contribute they have. One of the first authors to try his hand at writing a sequel to Arthur Gordon Pym is one of the luminary father figures of science fiction himself, French author Jules Verne. His answer to Poe's challenge was *The Sphinx of the Eyes*, which he published in 1897 as a two-volume novel. It's also been published in English versions as *An Antarctic Mystery*. The story is told from the perspective of a wealthy U.S. explorer named Yorling, who's off on his own business, but starts to come into contact with a number of characters we first meet in the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, and slowly puts together the mystery surrounding what happened to Pym until at last he finds Pym himself. The title "The Sphinx of the Eyes" actually refers to a huge mountain. That is magnetically charged by particle streams that get focused on the poles through the magnetic field of the planet. So you end up with a nice science fiction premise behind all of the bizarre things that are happening there in the Antarctic. Throughout the work, Verne makes it very clear that he's picking up where Poe left off, adopting the characters, the plot situation, and solving the mystery that Poe provided. Several decades passed before the next great answer to Poe's Arthur Gordon Pym. That came in three successive 1936 issues of Astounding Stories, and was the novella *At the Mountains of Madness* by my man H.P. Lovecraft. Now, *At the Mountains of Madness* is important for a number of reasons. Perhaps most importantly for Lovecraft fans, because it demythologized. The Cthulhu mythos. That is, it looked at many of the earlier supernatural stories H.P. Lovecraft had written, stories that could seem to be mere supernatural horror, and gave them a science fiction foundation or justification. Unlike Jules Verne, H.P. Lovecraft doesn't have his characters meet up with characters from the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. Or even show an awareness of Pym's story or his mystery, but he does explicitly link his tale of the research team from Miskatonic University discovering strange alien life forms at an ancient civilization in Antarctica to Poe's novel, and he does so by adopting as a central part of the story the strange cry heard by Arthur Gordon Pym. Tequilili, Poe leads us to assume that this foreign sound, this strange cry, is somehow a key or clue to the mystery of the world in which Arthur Gordon Pym finds himself, and Lovecraft picks this up and uses it to great effect. Incidentally, if you don't mind a playful take on Lovecraft, or in this case, a playful take on H.P. Lovecraft's serious take on Edgar Allan Poe. 
I suggest At the Mountains of Murkiness, the short story by Arthur C. Clarke, which is a loving send-up of At the Mountains of Madness. Our last stop on the tour of the ongoing ripple effects of the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket is a 1938 novella influenced by, some claim inspired by, H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Another story devoted to the question, what exactly is going on at the pole? I'm talking about who goes there, credited to Don Stewart, which was the pseudonym for John W. Campbell himself. Yes, the editor of Astounding Science Fiction tried his hand at this mystery. This work of literature is well-known, but not as well-known as the film based on it, The Thing from Another World, often referred to just as The Thing, the 1951 science fiction film about the Air Force crew and scientists at the remote research outpost who fight a nasty alien creature. The 1951 film was remade in 1982, also as The Thing. The 1951 film version is considered a classic of science fiction cinema, and it's also remembered for the early and uncredited appearance of a young James Arness under tons of makeup as The Thing itself. For all the fun this film provides, the 1982 John Carpenter version is actually more faithful to the original Campbell story. And so, the wild ride of Arthur Gordon Pym takes us from Edgar Allan Poe through Jules Verne to H.P. Lovecraft, John W. Campbell, and ends up with John Carpenter. I did promise you an interesting story. Just in case you're following up on any of these works, here are a couple of notes. The narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket by Edgar Allan Poe is available online at the Project Gutenberg website as Volume 3 of the works of Edgar Allan Poe. There is also an unabridged reading of the story at LibriVox.org. The Ice Sphinx by Jules Verne is available under its alternate title, An Antarctic Mystery, at Project Gutenberg, and there is also an unabridged reading of this as An Antarctic Mystery at LibriVox.org. At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft is available at various places online, and I highly recommend the new audio version, recorded like a vintage radio dramatization, made by and available for purchase from the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of Edgar Allan Poe's gift that keeps on giving. And if you take nothing else from this segment, remember this. If you should ever find yourself in some remote Arctic locale, and you hear the cry, Tequili Lee, run for cover. There you go, Amy. Thank you so much. What a, do you mean, excellent. Honestly, this is one of the reasons why this show is just building and building to be like the scale it is because it's like the quality that's coming out there is just fantastic. Amy, thank you so much. So we have Mark Bowman just with a little update on the Sofa Nord Awards and I will get back after Mark has delivered his little update. Hello everyone, it's Mark Bowman here with an update for you on the Starship Sofa Awards, the Sofa Nords. Last week, Starship Sofa announced that it would be holding its very first awards, which have been named the Sofanauts. 
the Sophonauts will be recognising listener favourites in these categories. Best Main Fiction, Best Flash Fiction, Best Poetry Contributor, Best Fact Article Contributor, and Best Narrator. We opened the nomination round last week, asking people to nominate as many stories and contributors in each of those categories as they felt appropriate. Lots of you have already voted. Thank you very much. I can tell you this so far that we have had many, many nominations, mostly over on the online poll, but a few on the forums, which is good to see because people can write their own comments and thoughts on their favourites. Things are very close in all of the categories. There's some clear favourites emerging, but it could go any way at the moment. So it's very important that if you have not voted yet that you... Get in there and have your say. So you can either cast your nominations on the online poll, which you can access from starshipsofa.com. There's a link there. Or you can head into the Starship Sofa forums and leave your nominations there in the appropriate threads. And remember, you can nominate as many stories and contributors as you like, provided, of course, that they are from the first 52 episodes of Oral Delights. Now, that nomination poll will be closed next Tuesday evening, uh, evening Australia time, of course, so about 9pm here in the eastern states, which makes it about 10am in the morning for UK listeners or US listeners. I guess it's going to be early morning, sort of around 2 to 5am. And let's not forget my neighbours in New Zealand, it'll be about 11 o'clock at night for you guys. So, plenty of time to vote there. Uh, Even if you are voting on the online polls, I still suggest checking out the comments that are being made on the forums. Not only are people nominating there, but they're also uh, commenting on the stories and the contributors as well. It's especially useful if you remember a story um, but can't recall the author or the title. There's plenty of people over there who can help you out with the names. So, that's just about it from me. I'll be back next week to let you know who the shortlisted stories and contributors are that will be making up the finalists for the Sophonauts. There'll be another poll for you to vote for those. So thank you again to everyone who has already nominated in this first round, and I hope that those of you who haven't will be doing so before next week. Okay, that's all I've got to say about that. Thank you. Back to you, Tony. There you go. And if it, honestly, again, if it wasn't for Mark leading me by the hand and just totally organising all this, all the emails and everything like that, all put together on the polls, it wouldn't have happened. So, Mark, thank you so much for that. And like Mark says, not long, and it is close, so close now between some of them. So if you haven't voted or you even get your friends to vote, do you know what I mean? Make sure you get your piece in that the final ballot, and that will be coming very, very soon. So we move on now to main fiction of the show, which is Joan D. Vinge. I'll give you a little heads up on what's happening in Joan D. Vinge. Born in Baltimore, Maryland, as Joan Carol Dennison. American, as we know, science fiction author. She is known for such works as her Hugo-winning novel The Snow Queen and its sequels, a series about the telepath named Cat and her Heaven's Belt Chronicles. 
Her first story, Tin Soldier, a novelette, appeared in Orbit 14 in 1974. Her stories have also appeared in Analog, Millennium Women, Asimov's Omi, and a number of Best of Year anthologies. For several years, Joan D. Vinge was the token female hard science fiction writer in Analog. She was asked to write for their all-women issue, the cover story. In the mid-70s, that story, Eyes of Amber, won her the 1977 Hugo Award. She has books out, Heaven's Chronicles, The Snow Queen, World's End, Scion, Cat's Paw, Dreamfall, Summer Queen and Tangled Up in Blue. And if you go to her website now at the moment, she, there is a little offer on. If you buy Scion or Cat's Paw, tell Joan D. Vinge about it. She will send you a signed book plate. There you go. How cool is that? So pop over to Joan D. Vinge's site again. There will be a link on the front of the website. Go over there. Send her an email because I know she's having a bit of a crabby time at the moment. She's hurt her knee or smashed her knee and it's not healing right and things like that. So a little email saying how much you enjoy the story would be fantastic. Narration today comes from Diane Severson. Diane has pulled out all the stops on this. It is fantastic. So, Diane, thank you so much. Do pop over to Diane's site. Do check out her CD. Little heads up for maybe the Christmas show. We might get some music by Diane. You never know. So, check out Diane's blog and her CD. Thank you so much. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present A View from a Height by Joan Day Vinge. Saturday, the 7th. I want to know why those pages were missing. How am I supposed to keep up with my research if they leave out pages? <sighs> Listen to yourself, Emmy Lou. You're listening to The Sound of Fear. It was an oversight, you know that. Nobody did it to you on purpose. Relax, you're getting fortnight fever. Tomorrow you'll get the pages and an apology too, if Harvey Weems knows what's good for him. But still, five whole pages and the table of contents. How could you miss five pages and the table of contents? How do I know there hasn't been a coup? The Northwest's finally taken over completely, and they're censoring the media. And like the man without a country... Everything they send me from now on is going to have holes cut in it. In science? Or maybe Weems has decided to drive me insane. Oh my God, it would be a short trip. Look at me. I don't have any fingernails left. Ark! Hello, beautiful! Hello? Hello? Ozymandias, get out of my hair, you devil! <laughs> Polly want a cracker? Here, gently, that's a boy. It's beautiful when he flies. I never get tired of watching him, or looking at him, even after twenty years. Twenty years. What did the Cetacity do to win the right to wear a rainbow as their plumage? Although the way we've hunted them for it, you could say it was a mixed blessing, like some other things. Twenty years. How strange it sounds to hear those words, and know they're true. There are gray hairs when I look in the mirror. Wrinkles starting, and Weems is bald, bald as an egg, and all squinty behind his spectacles. How did we get that way without noticing it? Time is both longer and shorter than you think, and usually all at once. 
Twelve days is a long time to wait for somebody to return your call. Twenty years is a long time gone. But I feel somehow as though it was only last week when I left home. I keep the circuits clean, going over them and over them, showing those mental home movies until I could almost step across sometimes into that other reality. But then I always look down, and there's that tremendous abyss full of space and time, and I realize I can't again. You can't go home again. Especially when you're almost 1,000 astronomical units out in space. Almost there, the first rung of the ladder. Next Thursday is the day. Oh, that bottle of champagne that's been waiting for so long. Oh, the parallax view. I have the equal of the best astronomical equipment in all of near-Earth space at my command, and a view of the universe that no one has ever had before, and using them has made me the only astrophysicist ever to win a Ph.D. in deep space. Talk about your fieldwork. Strange to think that if the forward observatory had massed less than its thousand-plus tons, I would have been replaced by a machine. But because the installation is so large, I, in my infinite human flexibility, even with my infinite human appetite, become the most efficient legal tender. And the farther out I get, the more important my own ability to judge what happens and respond to it becomes. The first, and maybe the last, manned interstellar probe on a one-way journey into infinity, into a universe obscured by our own system's gases and dust, equipped with eyes that see everything from gamma to ultra-long wavelengths and ears that listen to the music of the spheres. And Emmy Lou Stewart, the captive audience, adrift on a star. If you hold with the idea that all the bits of inert junk drifting through space, no matter how small, have star potential, dark stars with brilliance in their secret hearts only kept back from letting it shine by fate, which denied them the critical mass to reach their kindling point. Speak of kindling, the laser beam just arrived to give me my daily boost, moving me a little faster so I'll reach a little deeper into the universe. Blue sky at bedtime. I always wasn't. 
night person. I'm sure they didn't design the solar sail to fill the light like the sky, but I'm glad it happened to work out that way. Sky blue was always my passion. The color, texture, fluid purity of it. This color isn't exactly right, but it doesn't matter, because I can't remember how anymore. This sky is a sun catcher, a big blue parasol. But so was the original from where I used to stand. The sky is a blue parasol. Did anyone ever say that before, I wonder? If anyone knows, speak up. Is anyone even listening? Will anyone ever be? Oh, who cares, anyway? Come on, Ozzy, climb aboard. Let's drop down to the observation porch while I do my meditation and try to remember what days were like. Weems, damn it, I want satisfaction. Sunday the 8th. That idiot! That intolerable moron! How could he do that to me? After all this time, wouldn't you think he'd know me better than that? To keep me waiting for twelve days, wondering and afraid. Twelve days of all the possible stupid paranoias I could weave with my idle hands and mind, making myself miserable, asking for trouble. And then giving it to me. God, he must be some kind of sadist. If only I could reach him and hurt him the way I've hurt these past hours. Except I know that the news wasn't his fault. That he didn't mean to hurt me. And so I can't even ease my pain by projecting it on him. I don't know what I would have done if his image hadn't been six days stale when it got here. What would I have done if he'd been in earshot when I was listening? What would I have said? Maybe no more than I did say. What can you say when you've realized you've thrown your whole life away? He sat there behind his faded blotter, twiddling his pen, picking up his souvenir moon rocks and laying them down, looking for all the world like a man with a time bomb in his desk drawer, and said, Don't worry, Emmylou. There's no problem, and went on saying it one way or another for five minutes until I was shouting, What's wrong, damn it? I thought you'd never even noticed the few pages with that sidling smile of his. And while I'm muttering, I may have been in solitary confinement for twenty years, Harvey, but it hasn't turned my brain to mush, he said, so maybe I'd better explain first. And the look on his face, ah, the look on his face. There's been a biomed breakthrough. If you were here on Earth, you, well, your body's immune responses could be made normal. And then he looked down, as though he could really see the look on my own face. Made normal. Made normal! It's all I can hear. I was born with no natural immunities, no defense against disease, no help for it. No. No, no, no. That's all I ever heard, all my life on Earth. Through the plastic walls of my sealed room, through the helmet of my sealed suit, and now it's all changed. They could cure me, but I can't go home. I knew this could happen. I knew it had to happen someday. But I chose to ignore that fact, and now it's too late to do anything about it. Then why can't I forget that I could have been free? I didn't answer Weems today. Screw Weems. 
There's nothing to say. Nothing at all. I'm so tired. Monday the 9th. Couldn't sleep. It kept playing over and over in my mind. Finally took some pills. Slept all day. Feel like hell. Stupid. And it didn't go away. It was waiting for me. Still waiting when I woke up. It isn't fair. I don't feel like talking about it. Tuesday the 10th. Ah, oh, Tuesday already. I haven't done a thing for two days. I haven't even started to check out the relay beacon. And that damn thing has to be dropped off this week. I don't have any strength. I can't seem to move. I just sit. But I have to get back to work. Have to. Instead, I read the printout of the article today, hoping I'd find a flaw. If that isn't the greatest irony of my entire life. For two decades, I prayed that somebody would find a cure for me. And for two more decades, I didn't care. Am I going to spend the next two decades hating it now that it's been found? No. Hating myself. I could have been free. They could have cured me. If only I'd stayed on earth. If only I'd been patient. But now it's too late. By twenty years. I want to go home. I want to go home. But you can't go home again. Did I really say that so blithely, so recently? You can't. You, Emmy Lou Stewart. You are in prison just as you have always been in prison. It's all come back to me so strongly. Why me? Why must I be the ultimate victim? In all my life, I've never smelled the sea wind or plucked berries from a bush and eaten them right there, or felt my parents' kisses against my skin, or a man's body, because to me they were all deadly things. I remember when I was a little girl and we still lived in Victoria. I was just three or four, just at the brink of understanding that I was the only prisoner in my world. I remember watching my father sit polishing his shoes in the morning before he left the museum, and me smiling so deviously. Daddy, I'll help you do that if you let me come out. And he came to the wall of my bubble and put his arms into the hugging gloves and said so gently, No. And then he began to cry, and I began to cry too, because I didn't know why I'd made him unhappy. And all the children at school with their spaceman jokes, pointing at the freak. All the years of insensitive people asking the same stupid questions every time I tried to go out anywhere. Worst of all, the ones who weren't stupid or insensitive. Like Jeffrey. No, I will not think about Jeffrey. I couldn't let myself think about him then. I could never afford to get close to a man because I'd never be able to touch him. And now it's too late. Was I controlling my fate when I volunteered for this one-way trip? Or was I just running away from a life where I was always helpless? Helpless to escape the things I hated? Helpless to embrace the things I loved? I pretended this was different and important. But was that really what I believed? No. I just wanted to crawl into a hole I couldn't get out of because I was so afraid. So afraid that one day I would unseal my plastic walls or take off my helmet and my suit, walk out freely to breathe the air, or wade in a stream, 
or touch flesh against flesh and die of it. So now I've walled myself into this hermetically sealed tomb for a living death, a perfectly sterile environment in which my body will not even decay when I die. Never having really lived, I shall never really die, dust to dust. A perfectly sterile environment in every sense of the word. I often stand looking at my body in the mirror after I take a shower. Hazel eyes, brown hair in thick waves with hardly any gray. And a good figure, not exactly stacked, but not unattractive. And no one has ever seen it that way but me. Last night I had the dream again. I haven't had it for such a long time. This time I was sitting on a carved wooden beast in the park beside the Provincial Museum in Victoria, but not as a child in my suit, as a college girl in white shorts and a bright cotton shirt, feeling the sun on my shoulders, and Geoffrey's arms around my waist. We strolled along the bayside hand in hand, under the Victoria lamp posts with their bright hanging flower baskets, and everything I do is fresh and spontaneous and full of the moment. But always, always, just when he holds me in his arms at last, just as I'm about to... I wake up. When we die, do we wake out of reality at last, and all our dreams come true? When I die... I will be carried on and on into the timeless depths of uncharted space in this computerized tombed, unmourned, and unremembered. In time, all the atmosphere will seep away, and my fair corpse, lying like snow whites in inviolate sleep, will be sucked dry of moisture until it is nothing but a mummified parchment of shriveled leather and bulging bones. Hello! Hello, baby! Good night. Yes. No. Maybe. Talk. Food time. Oh, Ozymandias. Yes, yes, I know. I haven't fed you. I'm sorry. I know. I know. Why am I so selfish? Just because I can't eat, I expect him to fast, too. No, I just forgot. He climbs the lamp pole like some tripodal bem, using both feet and his beak and stares at me with that glass-beady bird's eye, stares and stares and mumbles things, like a lunatic, until I can hardly stand not to shut him in a cupboard or something. But then he sidles along my shoulder and kisses me, such a tender caress against my cheek, with that hooked prehensile beak that could crush a walnut like a grape, to let me know that he's worried and he cares. And I stroke his feathers to thank him, and tell him that it's all right. But it's not, and he knows it. Does he ever resent his life? Would he, if he could? Stolen away from his own kind, raised in a sterile bubble to be a caged bird for a caged human? I'm only a bird in a gilded cage. I want to go home. Wednesday the 11th. Why am I keeping this journal? Do I really believe that sometime some alien being will find this, or some starship from Earth's glorious future will catch up to me? Glorious future hell. Stupid, selfish, short-sighted fools. They ripped the guts out of the space program after they sent me away. No one will ever follow me now. I'll be lucky if they don't declare me dead and forget about me. As if anyone would care what a woman all alone on a lumbering space probe thought about day after day for decades anyway. What monstrous conceit. 
I did lubricate the bearings on the big scope today. I did that much. I did it so that I could turn it back towards the earth. Toward the sun. Toward the whole damn system. Because I can't even see it. All the planets out to Saturn. All the planets the ancients saw are crammed into the space of two moon diameters. And too dim and small and far away below me for my naked eyes anyway. Even the sun is no more than a gaudy star that doesn't even make me squint. So I looked for them with the scope. Isn't it funny how when you're a child you see all those drawings and models of the solar system with big lumpy planets and golden wakes streaming around the sun? Somehow you never get over expecting it to look that way in person. And here I am, 1,000 astronomical units north of the solar pole, gazing down from a great height, and it doesn't look that way at all. It doesn't look like anything, even through the scope. One great blot of light, and all the pale, tiny diamond chips of planets and moons around it, barely distinguishable from half a hundred undistinguished stars trapped in the same arc of blackness. So meaningless, so insignificant, so disappointing. Five hours I spent today listening to my journal, looking back and trying to find something, I don't know, something I suddenly don't have anymore. I had it at the start. I was disgusting. Pollyanna grad students skipping and singing through the rooms of my very own observatory. It seemed like heaven, and a lifetime spent in it couldn't possibly be long enough for all that I was going to accomplish and discover. I'd never be bored. No, not me. And there was so much to learn about the potential of this place before I got out to where it supposedly would matter, and there would be new things to turn my wonderful extended senses toward, while I could still communicate easily with my dear mentor Dr. Weems and the world. Who'd ever have thought, when the lecherous old goat was my thesis advisor at Harvard, and making jokes to his other grad students about the lengths some women will go to to protect their virginity— that we would have to spend a lifetime together. There was Ozymandias's first word, and my first birthday in space, and my first anniversary, and my doctoral degree at last, printed out by the computer with scrolls made of little X's and taped up on the wall. Then day and night, and day and night, beating me black and blue with blue and black, my fifth anniversary, my eighth, my decade— I crossed the magnetopause to become truly the first voyager in interstellar space. But by then, there was no one left to talk to anymore, to really share the experience with. Even the radio and television broadcasts drifting out from Earth were diffuse and rare. There were fewer and fewer contacts with the reality outside, the plodding routines, the stupefying boredom, until sometimes I stood screaming down the halls just for something new listening to the echoes that no one else would ever hear, and pretending they'd come to call, trying so hard to believe there was something to hear that wasn't my voice, my echo, or Ozymandias making a mockery of it. Hello, beautiful! That's a crock! Hello! Hello! Ozymandias, get away from me! But always I had that underlying belief in my mission, that I was here for a purpose, for more than my own selfish reasons, or NASA's, or whatever the hell they call it now, but for humanity and science. Through meditation, I learned the real value of inner silence, 
and thought that by creating an inner peace I had reached equilibrium with the outer silences. I thought that meditation had disciplined me. I was in touch with myself and with the soul of the cosmos. But I haven't been able to meditate since it happened. The inner silence fills up with my own anger screaming at me until I can't remember what peace sounds like. And what have I really discovered so far? Almost nothing. Nothing worth wasting my analysis or all my fine theories or my freedom on. Space is even emptier than anyone dreamed. You could count on both hands the bits of cold dust or world lit I've passed in all this time, lost souls falling helplessly through near-perfect vacuum, all of us together. With my absurdly long astronomical tape measure, I have fixed precisely the distance to NGC 2419 and a few other features, and from that made new estimates about a few more distant ones, but I have not detected a miniature black hole insatiably vacuuming up the vacuum. I have not pierced the invisible clouds that shroud the ultra-long wavelengths like fog. I have not discovered that life exists beyond the earth in even the most tentative way. Looking back at the solar system, I see nothing to show definitively that we even exist anymore. All I hear anymore when I scan is electromagnetic noise, no coherent thought. Only weems every twelfth night like the last man alive. Christ, I still haven't answered him. Uh, why bother? Let him sweat. Why bother with any of it? Why waste my precious time? Oh, my precious time. Half a lifetime left that could have been mine on earth. Twenty years. I came through them all, all right. I thought I was safe. And after twenty years, my facade of discipline and self-control falls apart at a touch. What a self-deluded hypocrite I've been. Do you know that I said the sky was like a blue parasol eighteen years ago? And probably said it again fifteen years ago, and ten, and five. Tomorrow I pass one thousand AUs. Thursday the twelfth. I burned out the scope. I burned out the scope. I left it pointing towards the earth, and when the laser came on for the night, it shone right down the scope's throat and burned it out. Oh, I'm so ashamed. Did I do it on purpose? Subconsciously? Good night, starlight. Ark. Good night. Good damn it. I want to hear another human voice. 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 When I found out what I'd done, I ran away. I ran and ran through the halls but I only ran in a circle. This observatory, my prison, myself, I can't escape. I'll always come back in the end to this green-walled room with its desks and its terminals, its cupboards crammed with a hundred thousand dozens of everything, toilet paper and magnetic tape and oxygen tanks, and I can tell you exactly how many steps it is to my bedroom or how long it took me to crochet the afghan on the bed, how long I've sat in the dark and silence setting up an exposure program, or listening for the feeble pulse of a radio galaxy two billion light-years away. There will never be anything different, or anything more. When I finally came back here, there was a message waiting. Weems, grinning out at me, half-bombed from the screen. Congratulations, he cried, on this historic occasion. Emmy Lou, 
We're having a great celebration here at the lab. Mind if we join you in yours? 1,000 astronomical units from home. I've never seen him drunk. They really must have meant to do something nice for me, planning it all six days ahead. To celebrate, I shouted obscenities I didn't even know I knew at him until my voice was broken and my throat was raw. Then I sat at my desk for a long time with my jackknife lying open in my hand. Not wanting to die, I've always been too afraid of death for that, but wanting to hurt myself. I wanted to make a fresh hurt, to take my attention off the terrible thing that is sucking me into myself like an imploding star. Or maybe just to punish myself, I don't know. But I considered the possibility of actually cutting myself quite calmly, while some separate part of me looked on in horror. I even pressed the knife against my flesh, and then I stopped and put it away. It hurts too much. I can't go on like this. I have duties, obligations, and I can't face them. What would I do without the emergency automax? But it's the rest of my life, and they can't go on doing my job for me forever. Later. I just had a visitor. Strange as that sounds, stranger yet, it was Donald Duck. I picked up half of a children's cartoon show today, the first coherent piece of non-directional, unbeamed television broadcast I've recorded in months. And I don't think I've been happier to see anyone in my life. What a nice surprise. So glad you could drop by. Ozymandias loves him. He hangs upside down from his swing under the cabinet with a cracker in one foot, cackling away, saying, Give us a kiss! Smack, smack, smack! We watched it three times. I even smiled for a while until I remembered myself. It helps. Maybe I'll watch it again until bedtime. Friday the 13th Friday the 13th. Amusing. Poor Friday the 13th. What did it ever do to deserve its reputation? Even if it had any power to make my life miserable, it couldn't hold a candle to the rest of this week. It seems like an eternity since last weekend. I repaired the scope today, replaced the burned-out parts, had to suit up and go outside for part of the work. I haven't done any outside maintenance for quite a while. Odd how both exhilarating and terrifying it always is when I first step out of the airlock, utterly alone, into space. You're entirely on your own, so far away from any possibility of help, so far away from anything at all. And at that moment, you doubt yourself, suddenly, terribly, just for a moment. But then you drag your umbilical out behind you and clank along the hull in your magnetized boots that feel so reassuringly like lead ballast. You turn on the lights and look for the trouble, find it, and get to work. It doesn't bother you anymore. When your life seems to have torn loose and be drifting free, it creates a kind of sea anchor to work with your hands. Whether it's doing some mindless routine chore or the most intricate of repairs, there was a moment of panic when I actually saw charred wires and melted metal. When I imagined the damage was so bad that I couldn't repair it again, it looked so final, so masterful. I clung there by my feet and whimpered and clenched my hands inside my gloves like a great shining baby for a while. But then I pulled myself down and began to pry here and unscrew there and twist a component free, and little by little I replaced everything. One step at a time, the way we get through life. 
By the time I had finished, I felt quite calm for the first time in days. The thing that's been trying to choke me to death this past week seemed to falter a little at my demonstration of competence. I've been breathing easier since then, but I still don't have much strength. I used up all I had just overcoming my own inertia. But I shut off the lights and hiked around the hull for a while afterward. I couldn't face going back inside just then. Looking at the black convex dish of the solar sail I'm embedded in, Up at the radio antenna's smaller dish, occluding stars as the observatory's cylinder wheels endlessly at the hub of the spinning parasol. That made me dizzy, and so I looked out into the star fields that lie on every side. Even with my own poor, unaugmented senses, there's so much more to see out there, unimpeded by atmosphere or dust, undominated by any sun's glare. The brilliance of the Milky Way, the depths of star and nebula, and farthest galaxy breathlessly suspended, as I am. The realization that I'm lost for eternity in an uncharted sea. Strangely, although that thought aroused a very powerful emotion when it struck me, it wasn't a negative one at all. It was from another scale of values entirely, like the universe itself. It was as if the universe itself stretched out on its fingers to touch me, and in touching me, singling me out, it only heightened my awareness of my own insignificance. That was somehow very comforting. When you confront the absolute indifference of magnitudes and vistas so overwhelming, the swollen ego of your self-important suffering is diminished. And I remembered one of the things that was always so important to me about space, that here anyone has to put on a spacesuit before they step outside. We're all aliens, no one better equipped to survive than another. I am as normal as anyone else out here. I must hold on to that thought. Saturday the 14th There is a reason for my being here. There is a reason. I was able to meditate earlier today, not in the old way, the usual way, by emptying my mind, rather by letting the questions fill up the space, not fighting them, letting them merge with my memories of all that's gone before. I put on music, the great mnemonic stimulator, letting the images that each tape evoked free associate and interact. And in the end, I could believe again that my being here was the result of a free choice. No one forced me into this. My motives for volunteering were entirely my own. And I was given this position because NASA believed that I was more likely to be successful in it than anyone else they could have chosen. It doesn't matter that some of my motives happened to be unresolved fear or wanting to escape from things I couldn't cope with. It really doesn't matter. Sometimes retreat is the only alternative to destruction, and only a madman can't recognize the truth of that. Only a madman... Is there anyone sane on earth who isn't secretly a fugitive from something unbearable somewhere in their life? And yet, they function normally. If they ran, they ran towards something, too, not just away. And so did I. I had already chosen a career as an astrophysicist before I ever dreamed of being a part of this project. I could have become a medical researcher instead, worked on my own to find a cure for my condition— I could have grown up hating the whole idea of space and spacemen, stumbling through life in my damned, ugly, sterile suit. 
But I remember when I was six years old, the first time I saw a film of suited astronauts at work in space. They looked just like me, and no one was laughing. How could I help but love space then? And how could I help but love Jeffrey with his night black hair and his blue flight suits with the starry patch on the shoulder? Poor Jeffrey. Poor Jeffrey, who never even realized his own dream of space before they cut the program out from under him. I will not talk about Jeffrey. I will not. Yes, I could have stayed on Earth and waited for a cure. I knew even then there would have to be one someday. It was both easier and harder to choose space instead of staying. And I think the thing that really decided me was that those people had faith enough in me and my abilities to believe that I could run this observatory and my own life smoothly for as long as I lived. Billions of dollars and a thousand tons of equipment resting on me, like Atlas holding up his world. Even Atlas tried to get rid of his burden, because no matter how vital his function was, the responsibility was still a burden to him. But he took his burden back again, too, didn't he? For better or for worse. I worked today. I worked my butt off getting caught up on a week's worth of data processing and maintenance, and I'm still not finished. Discovered while I was at it that Ozymandias had used those five missing pages just like the Daily News, crapped all over them. My sentiments exactly! I laughed and laughed. I think I may live. Sunday the 15th. The clouds have parted. That's not rhetorical. Among my fresh processed data is a series of photo reconstructions in the ultra-long wavelengths, and there's a gap in the obscuring gas up ahead of me, a break in the clouds that extends 30 or 40 light years, maybe 50. Fantastic. What a view. What a view I have from here of everything, with my infinitely extended vision of the way ahead, of the passing scene, or looking back toward Earth. Looking back. I'll never stop looking back and wishing it could have been different. That at least there could have been two of me, one to be here, one who could have been normal back on Earth, so I wouldn't have to be forever torn in two by regrets. Hello! What's up, Doc? Avast! Hey, watch it. If you drink, don't fly. Damn bird. If I'm getting maudlin, it's because I had a party today. Drank a whole bottle of champagne. Yes, I had the party. We did. Ozymandias and I. Our private 1000 AU celebration. Better late than never, I guess. At least we did have something concrete to celebrate. The photos. And if the celebration wasn't quite as merry as it could have been, still I guess it will probably seem like it was when I look back on it from the next one at 2000 AUs. They'll be coming faster now, the celebrations. I may even live to celebrate 8000. What the hell? I'll shoot for 10,000. After we finished the champagne. Ozymandias thinks 98 was a great year. Thank God he can't drink as fast as I can. I put on my Strauss waltzes and the Barcarolle. Oh, the Berliner Philharmonic. Their touch is what a lover's kiss must be. I threw the view outside onto the big screen, a ballroom of stars, and danced with my shadow. And part of the time I wasn't dancing above the abyss in a jumpsuit and headphones, but waltzing in yards of satin and lace across a ballroom floor in 19th century Vienna. What I wouldn't give to be there for a moment out of time. Not for a lifetime or even a year, 
but just for an evening, just for one waltz. Another thing I shall never do. There are so many things we can't do, any of us, for whatever the reasons, time, talent, life's callous whims. We're all on a one-way trip into infinity. If we're lucky, we're given some life's work we care about, or some person, or both, if we're very lucky. And I do have weems. Sometimes I see us like an old married couple, who have grown to a tolerant understanding over the years. We've never been soulmates, God knows, but we're comfortable with each other's silences. I guess it's time I answered him. Afterward, view from a height came very neatly out of one paragraph in an analog article. The article, written by Dr. Robert L. Forward, was about a manned astronomical observatory traveling on a one-way trip out of the solar system into space. In the article, Dr. Forward speculated briefly on what sort of person would choose to dedicate a lifetime to such a journey. This story was an attempt to answer that question. Many writers can't talk about a new idea before the story is written, because talking about the idea takes away the need to express it, and then the story itself never gets put on paper. I belong to the group of writers who actually need to talk about an idea. I find that the give and take of sharing it reveals possibilities I hadn't considered before. The feedback stimulates my creative processes. I talked about this story with Werner, who has served as technical advisor and general editor on all of these stories to one extent or another. And the basic idea of a woman with no immune response came out of our discussions. The parrot came about because I wanted her to have some form of companionship, and I wanted it to be lasting companionship. Since parrots are very long-lived, she had a good chance of having Ozymandias for life. I'm fond of this story for a number of reasons, but particularly because I think there's a universality to Emmy Lou's crisis and her resolution of it. We are all on a one-way trip. There is really no going back for any of us. The only choice we really have is to make the best of whatever options the choices we've made already have left to us. View from a Height is the first really successful short story I've written. My natural length seems to be longer. A short story for me tends to run somewhere between 15,000 and 25,000 words. An actual short story of under 7,500 words is probably the most difficult type of prose writing to do effectively. It requires a great deal of discipline and a lot of work to create characters and develop a setting so quickly. That may be why I've shied away from it. But on the other hand, story ideas do have natural lengths built into them. In order for a story to succeed, the basic idea has to be given its head to some extent and not forced into a preset mold. A short story that has been overinflated into a novella is usually tedious, just as a novella squeezed into a short story length is disappointing, like a too small helping of dessert. As I write, I've begun to develop a sense of how long a story needs to be before I begin it. I felt that this idea was meant to be a short story, and the actual writing of it didn't resist that feeling. The end product was something I felt comfortable and right about, and relieved. The writer's sixth sense is not always fail-safe, however. I just finished a normal 60,000-word novel, which in the end has come out closer to 200,000 words. Writing is nothing if not a learning experience.
And don't forget, copyright is definitely Joan D. Vinge's. Joan, thank you so much for that. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. Diane, what a star. Thank you so much. Pop over to Diane's site as well and just say hello. So there we go. We come on now to the competitions of Starships Over. Well, let me just tell you, we had three Charles Stross books now. They are being sent out because of one of the good forum members, Stingo. He sent in a little kind of review or a little mention that got picked up in the magazine called Word, which is like a music magazine. And what was really quite cool was that Stingo mentioned loads of things about himself, about what he likes, music and all that. They cut all that out and they just mentioned the Starship Sofa. So Stingo, thank you so much. I will send on the three Charlie Strasbourg. And I'm going to send out one. Can everyone remember Gary Mayne? Gary, hello, sir. Gary was Sergeant Staff Staff Sergeant Gary Mayne in Afghanistan when we put a play out to send over some like paperback books because of all the kind of soldiers out there had nothing to read. And that's Gary, yes. Gary sent off a little, and I got the email, like a forwarded email that he sent off to a magazine, like a hard copy magazine, and I forget which one it was, to be quite honest, but the lad tried, so there you go, I'm sending Gary, I don't know what I'm sending out, but you will get a copy of whatever it is, Gary, thank you so much. I have also got now for competition, I have got three signed copies of... Cory Doctorow's little brother. Well, actually, there's only going to be two going in a competition. <laughs> I'm <them> on myself. <laughs> you know why, though? Because it's the UK cover version, and it's got his signature in it. And I got it from Forbidden Planet, and I'm chuffed a bits with it. So that's my little kind of payment for the year. <laughs> I'll have one of them. Thank you very much. So I've got two copies of Cory Doctorow's book, signed editions of Little Brother. And I have got a few copies of various... Analog, no, sorry, Asimov's magazine. I sent off a couple of months ago for, if you look in Asimov's magazine, you can kind of buy some back issues for relatively nothing, really. So I sent them off, my little check there came and I had every one, <laughs> every bloody one. So I have got some copies of Analog magazines. Now, how do you win the Cory Doctorow and the Analogs? Analogs, the Asimovs? Try and get Starship Sova mentioned on another blog that's all i ask get it mentioned on another blog in another magazine just a little bit of kind of advertising for the starships over you can win one of those prizes send in your email quickest one does it to be quite honest because i know these cory doctor ones will go straight away don't mention it on your own website that's cheaty 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 mention it on do you know me I'll, i'll sign kisses and everything if you get it on boing boing or someone like that so there you go that's what's up some Asimov's and some signed Cory Doctorow little brother. How cool is that? So, there you go. That is the Starship Sofa for this week. Oral Delights put to bed. Hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. Look out for our Christmas show coming on the 24th of December. And this is just a kind of heads up. It's There's still another show to go before the Christmas show. But please try and get to the Christmas show on the Wednesday. Because it comes out on Wednesday. And the Wednesday is the 24th of December. So it'll be all kind of Christmas orientated. But if you get it like a week later, it's, it's going to be a bit kind of like a wet heron. So do look out for the Christmas show. Which will be coming to you on the 24th of Wednesday, the 24th of December. 
looking forward to Christmas. So until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.